In Christian scholarship, a name commonly given to the first main section of the Gospel of John is called the Book of Signs. Before that, John's prologue is a highly inspired hymn to the Word that's majestically, I believe, on a literary level with Genesis chapter 1. John's prologue begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it goes on, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Then follows the book of signs, beginning from verse 19 of John chapter 1 through to the end of chapter 12. As I said, theologians call these chapters the book of signs named for seven notable signs or miracles wrought by Jesus to give absolute assurance of salvation to anyone who believes in him. The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Dark. The Gospel of John focuses upon a number of miraculous signs that the Apostle John specifically selected to write about. And he testified that Jesus also performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in the Gospel of John. However, Jesus' public signs that John specifically selected to share were recorded for the purpose that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have eternal life in his name. And the last verse of the Gospel of John in John 21, 25 also declares, there are many more things that Jesus did. If all of them were written down one by one, I suppose that not even the world itself would have space for the books that would be written. According to the commentaries, that statement was not unhealthy hyperbole because the extraordinary significance of the blessed life and actions of the Son of God were ample justification for John's enthusiasm. After all, every moment of the Lord's life was infinitely rich in his deeds, words, and influence. His every action was a revelation of his heavenly father. So the miracles that John specifically selected were recorded for our benefit, that we might believe and have the gift of eternal life in the name of Jesus, or Yeshua, his Hebrew name. The signs are meant to bring us to absolute assurance in the salvation that was procured for us by Jesus through the travail of his soul in his passion on the cross during Passover. The theme of John's gospel is simply to believe. Jesus did many other things, but these signs are written, John said, that you may believe. And the seven signs are arranged chronologically in John's gospel. So let's consider them. The first of the public signs is recorded in John chapter 2. At a wedding in the village of Cana in the Galilee, the wine had run out, 
and to keep the host from embarrassment. Jesus' mother, Mary, suggested that he do something. So Jesus decided to change water that was stored in ceremonial stone jars into wine. The miracle showed his power over nature. The text says nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for purification, that is, ceremonial washing, and each jar holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So the wedding must have taken place at a synagogue or nearby, as the verse alludes. At Jesus' command, the servants of the wedding feast filled the jars to the brim with water. This task was done by the servants of the wedding feast so that there would be no opportunity of accusation that Jesus' disciples had faked a miracle. The jars were to be filled to the brim with water so that no wine could be poured in, making a mixture. In fact, wine had never been stored in these ceremonial vessels of purification. Immediately, the miracle wine was taken to the master of the banquet, who announced with surprise, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink but you have saved the best wine till last. Well, back in 1997, I met an archaeologist in Israel who was searching for the temple treasures. His name was Dr. Gary Collette, and he shared fascinating insights about the water that Jesus had changed into wine. John 2.6 says that the water in the six stone jars was after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. So this was holy water that had been purified by being mixed with water sanctified by the ashes of the red heifer in Jerusalem. That water was the most sanctified water in Israel. And the synagogues throughout the land of Israel contained this sacred water for ceremonial purposes of purification. Dr. Collette said that the wedding at Cana must have taken place at a synagogue or near a synagogue. And he said that the first miracle was that Jesus had divine authority to tamper with the sacred water without retribution. Not only was the purification water mixed with regular water under the instruction of Jesus, but the water was thoroughly changed into the best wine. By this, Jesus demonstrated his divinity and authority over and above the temple system. Another interesting side note is that Moses had prophesied about the future Messiah in the Torah in Deuteronomy 18.15. And the first miraculous plague in Egypt under the ministry of Moses was turning water into blood. The first public miracle of Jesus was turning water into wine. Now, what was the second attesting sign specifically selected by John in his book of signs revealing Jesus as Messiah? John chose the healing from a distance of a nobleman's son as recorded in John chapter 4. The royal official's son lay sick at Capernaum and was about to die. But when the father heard Jesus was in the Galilee, he found Jesus and begged him to come and heal his son. In verse 48, Jesus remonstrated, Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you simply will never believe. 
Sir, the official persisted, come before my child dies. But Jesus answered, go, your son will live. Jesus spoke with such authority that the man took Jesus at his word and departed to go home. And he learned that his son recovered at the exact same hour that Jesus proclaimed his healing. And so the nobleman and all his household believed. This sign demonstrated that Jesus is master of time, space, and distance. A sign to all people that Jesus is not just a mere man, but God incarnate. And there's another lesson here. Do we have the faith to take God in his word like that nobleman? For example, God says in his word, all have sinned. Do we realize that by nature we're sinners in need of the Savior? This word is just full of promises. Jesus cried in a loud voice on the cross, it is finished. Have you accepted your salvation as a finished work? Have you put your trust in the Redeemer? Or are you still thinking, as many do, I must do something to secure my salvation? But Jesus said, it is finished. Jesus also said, I'll never turn away anyone who comes to me. So do you say, I fear he will not receive me? God says the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. Do you question this truth or do you receive it with joy? And God says, I will provide for you. Do you take God at his word like the nobleman did in John chapter 4? Or are you always anxious? Well, the third sign recorded in the Gospel of John was the healing of the paralytic man in John chapter 5 at Jerusalem's pool of Bethesda. Bethesda means house of mercy. Jesus wasn't found in luxury palaces, but in the haunts of misery. Jesus visited the pool of Bethesda because of the misery congregated there. So many hapless souls were hoping for the restoration of their health. But a certain lame man was especially miserable, having suffered helplessness for 38 years. This cripple seemed resigned to his fate. But Jesus embodies help for the helpless. And this third sign of the miraculous healing of the paralytic demonstrated Jesus' power over time, sickness, and despair. The Messiah, the Anointed One, shows compassion on those who are helpless and who have been reduced in body, faith, and spirit. Jesus first asked the man, and this is an important point, do you want to be well? On the surface, wasn't that an obvious question? It brings to mind Jesus' healing in Mark chapter 10 of blind Bartimaeus, who cried out in Jericho as Jesus passed by, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Before healing Bartimaeus, Jesus had asked, what do you want me to do for you? So why did Jesus sometimes ask afflicted persons these questions? It concerns the importance of a person's will and consent. Jesus didn't heal people against their will. The man protested that he had no one to help him at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus commanded the paralytic, rise, take up your mat. And that was the voice of divine authority. And immediately the man was made whole.
the human race by sin, is spiritually sick and helpless. But the risen Messiah asks us all the penetrating question, do you really want to be made whole? He's willing and able, if we're willing, to put our faith and trust in Him. The whole world is Bethesda, the house of mercy. There is much suffering in our world, but the Lord's mercy has come to this world. The fourth and fifth signs reported by John are both found in chapter 6. Jesus' feeding of the multitude of 5,000 through the multiplication of a little boy's lunch and Jesus walking on the water of the Sea of Galilee. Both of these signs demonstrated Jesus' divine power over nature. Sign number six was the miraculous healing of the man who was blind from birth. This was a messianic miracle of prophetic significance, and the rabbis should have recognized it as such. John chapter 9 is given over entirely to this miraculous account and demonstrates that Jesus is the creator, God incarnate, God in the flesh. Sign number 7 recorded in John chapter 11 is the raising of Jesus' friend Lazarus from the dead after four days in the tomb, demonstrating Jesus' mastery over death. Some Bible scholars have emphasized a sequence of not just seven signs, but eight signs in the Gospel of John, concluding with the miraculous catch of fish in chapter 21 in one of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. The disciples had temporarily gone back to fishing, but had caught nothing. The resurrected Jesus stood on the shore and called out to them, "'Cast your net on the right side of the boat.'" They did, and they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. John recognized this as the work of the miracle worker. So he exclaimed, it is the Lord, at which Peter jumped into the water to meet Jesus, an aspect often illustrated in Christian art, while the other disciples towed in the net full of 153 large fish. Still other scholars have emphasized the eighth sign as being the resurrection of Jesus himself. But you see, actually, not just the Gospel of John, but the entire Bible is a book of signs. It's a book of miracles. According to Bible teacher Chuck Missler of Blessed Memory, who was an information scientist, the recurrence of the number seven is found throughout the Bible, both on the surface and also in the structure of the text. This phenomenon is widely recognized by scholars. Some prominent sevens in the Bible are the establishment of the Sabbath on the seventh day, the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine in the book of Genesis, the seven priests and seven trumpets marching around Jericho, the seventh sabbatical year when the land is supposed to rest, also Solomon's building the temple for seven years. The leper Naaman was instructed to wash in the river seven times. And in the book of Revelation, there are seven churches, seven stars, seven golden lampstands, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of judgment, 
all showing the consistent use of the number seven. As you may know, both Hebrew and Greek assign numerical values to the alphabet letters. Therefore, any specific word in either Hebrew or Greek has a numerical value of its own by adding up the values of the letters in any particular word. Various mathematical patterns of sevens and multiples of sevens are not only intriguing to discover in the Bible, they also demonstrate an intricacy of design testifying to the Bible's supernatural origin. Chuck Missler used to say that the chances of recurring sevens happening by statistical accident are phenomenally unlikely. Under the structure of the biblical text, there is a deliberate numerical design. And the person who discovered many of these things was Dr. Ivan Panin, who researched the Bible's structure of heptads, referring to the number seven, God's signature. Not only did God give Moses the Torah, he gave it to Moses letter by letter. And Chuck Missler said, if you would dare to change one letter in the Hebrew or Greek text, you would be tampering with the mathematical structures underneath the text. So the Bible is indeed a book of signs because of its prophetic nature as well. God declares the end from the beginning. Although no one knows the day or hour of the return of Yeshua, our Messiah, there are clues given in Scripture about the conditions of the world before His return. And Jesus Himself gave parables admonishing us to be watching for His imminent return. The Apostle Paul said that followers of the Lord can know the season of Messiah's return and warn that He will come as a thief in the night for those who are not watching. The Apostle Paul also forewarned of the rise of worldwide godlessness, as well as the apostasy of the institutional churches. Other scriptures foretold the rebirth of the nation of Israel, along with the Jews' desire to rebuild their temple, the rise of worldwide tyrannical government, the rise of the Antichrist, and the coming Great Tribulation. In addition to these general signs, however, there are also seminal prophecies in the book of Daniel. In Daniel 9.24, the prophet Daniel recorded a message from the angel Gabriel that 70 sevens, there's that number seven again, meaning 70 weeks of years, or in other words, 490 years remained at that time in Jewish redemptive history. Particularly interesting is that the climatic 70th week, the last seven years in Israel's history, was specifically set apart by the angel Gabriel as a separate set of seven years to be kept separate from the previous 69 weeks of years in Jewish history. Thus, the angel Gabriel prophesied a gap, an interruption in Israel's history, and it turns out that this gap has stretched to nearly 2,000 years. Theologians call this gap the Age of Grace or the Church Age. The gap was explained in Daniel 9, verse 26. Gabriel said that Messiah the Prince would be cut off, but not for himself. 
and that the execution of the Messiah would be followed by desolations determined upon the Jewish people, a prediction of their worldwide dispersion. So now we're living during the gap of time between Israel's 69th and 70th weeks of years, according to Gabriel's prophecy. This gap will be completed when the fullness of the Gentiles is brought into the church. Presently, the manner in which a person may attain right relationship with God is to believe the gospel and receive the Messiah who was cut off in order to make atonement for all who put their trust and faith in him as Savior, the Lamb of God. Israel's last 70th week of seven years is yet to be fulfilled in the future. But Jesus gave many signs called birth pains that the times of the Gentiles are coming to a conclusion and that Israel's redemption is near. It's fascinating that Bible prophecy not only sets apart Israel's last 70th week of years, but Bible prophecy also divides Israel's final 70th week of years into two equal parts, each consisting of three and a half years or 42 months. The first half of the 70th week will be a time of a temporary but false peace covenant. But according to Daniel 9:27, in the middle of the week, in other words, after three and a half years, a future evil ruler known as anti-Messiah, anti-Christ, will break a covenant and he will desecrate worship in the rebuilt Jewish temple, declaring himself to be God. Jesus alluded to this prophecy of the book of Daniel in his discourse on the Mount of Olives in Matthew chapter 24. And he said, when that abomination of desolation occurs, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains because the Antichrist will persecute the Jewish people. But Jesus said they will be protected by God in the mountains. In fact, Bible prophecy indicates that the Jewish remnant will be protected in the stronghold of Petra, which is located in Jordan. Then Jesus will return at the end of Israel's 70th week and will gather in the outcast of Zion. With all of the signs that are given in this book of signs, the question I need to ask now is, what are you going to do with Messiah, the Christ? Christ means the anointed one. Moshiach in Hebrew, Christos in Greek. In fact, Christology is the branch of theology relating the, to the person, nature, and role of the Messiah. By this you know the Spirit of God, according to 1 John 4, 2. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ, having come in the flesh, is of God. And every spirit, says verse 3, that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. So you see, the bottom line of truth revolves around Christology. What you make of Christ is the litmus test of truth. In fact, according to Revelation 19.10, Jesus, the Messiah, is the theme of all Bible prophecy, meaning his personhood is the theme of prophecy in both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. That's why the Apostle Paul insisted, we preach Messiah crucified. 
Why must Jesus be preached as crucified? Why is that so central? Because he died according to the scriptures and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. But the Bible warns us that there are going to be many antichrists and many false Christs to trouble us in the world. And the closer we come to the end of the church age, the more pseudo-Christs will proliferate. Today, we're contending for the true faith, despite depictions of a false sentimental Jesus or a false Christ of liberal liberation theology. Then there's the false Jesus of Mormonism and many other cults. We have to believe in the real biblical Jesus. He's not just a prophet because salvation comes by believing in the living Savior, the Son of God. That's the Apostle John's whole point in his book of signs, that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have eternal life in his name. When Jesus asked in Matthew 16, 13, who do men say that I am? He asked the very fundamental question, who is Jesus Christ? That's the most important question. Many heresies throughout church history have attacked the nature of the Lord Jesus. For example, Arianism, named after a heretic named Arius, erroneously claimed that Jesus was not God, but that he was a created being. The Council of Nicaea was convened to correct that heresy. And this icon shows the council putting down Arius and his heresy. The Apostles' Creed is the most accurate representation of the Christian faith in the form of a creed. In fact, understanding the tenets of the Apostles' Creed will place you on the rock of the gospel. If the 12 Apostles had a website today, their About Us page would summarize their beliefs with the Apostles' Creed. With so many charges of anti-Semitism against the institutional churches, lately I've been musing on the fact that Thankfully, the Apostles' Creed is absolutely devoid of anti-Semitism. The Bible promises when you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and confessed Jesus as Lord, you shall be saved. The good news is that while the world is preparing for war, Scripture assures us that heaven is preparing for a wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb with His bride, the called out saved believers. While hell is enlarging itself on earth, Heaven is putting the finishing touches on the marriage supper. Amen. Perhaps your life has been shattered by all the spiritual warfare that's going on in this fallen world. God loved you so much that he died for your sins on the cross. Jesus took on himself the punishment that you and I rightly deserve. Perhaps you feel your life is nothing but a collection of broken pieces. But don't forget, Although mosaics are made from little broken pieces, they can still be made into beautiful and meaningful works of art. Why not say to the Savior, Lord, if you want the broken pieces of my life, take them. I give you my life for your safekeeping and service because I love you and I want to follow you all the remaining days of my life. Amen. I encourage you to let your faith find its resting place in the Lord Jesus. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now 
and evermore. Amen. I enjoy sharing with you through social media or check out our website, exploits.tv. And don't forget, download our free Jerusalem Channel app to access all our videos and our Bible reading plan. Always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. Until next time, I'm Christine Darg. Shalom and Maranatha.